because we're praying them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. Chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1, and our text this evening will be the first six verses. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, we pray that just as your Holy Spirit breathed out these words, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts tonight as the word is proclaimed. Uh, Use it, O God, to work faith in us, to strengthen us, and to feed our souls. And we pray you'd give us hearts to listen and to heed your word. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. People don't all that often come to me with theological questions. But when they do, I would say probably about 50% of the time, it's a question about end times. So... Now that we've just finished up the book of Haggai, I thought, okay, uh, I'll preach Revelation. Uh, But I can't, or I won't. Um, I've already preached Revelation for one thing, and by the way, that whole series is still on uh, Sermon Audio, so if you look me up on Sermon Audio, if you wanna hear my sermon series on Revelation, it's all still up there. But, uh, so I preached it already for one thing. Besides, Revelation, as you know, is New Testament, and in the evening services, we focus on preaching the Old Testament. And besides, now we're just two books away from the end of the Old Testament. We've done all the minor prophets except these last two. So, uh, Zechariah it is, not Revelation. But, you know, one might argue that Zechariah is kind of like the revelation of the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament version of John's revelation. There are some strikingly similar visions and images, you know. 
If you've read Revelation, which I'm sure you have, uh, you know about the four horsemen, right? And they come, and each one is on a different colored horse. Well, guess what we're going to see in Zechariah? We're going to see chariots pulled by horses of different colors. In Revelation 21, an angel comes, and he measures the holy city, the new Jerusalem that has come out of heaven, come come down from heaven, Uh, from God to the earth. And in Zechariah, Jerusalem is measured as well. Zechariah sees a vision of two olive trees. We see that in Revelation. Same sort of thing was shown to the Apostle John. You know, it's almost as if the uh, message of the Holy Spirit in Zechariah and in the book of Revelation are essentially the same. Should that surprise us? I don't think so. There is a lot of really rich material in Zechariah, and I'm excited about going through it with you. If you've ever read the Old Testament very much, some of the most compelling and most memorable passages in the Old Testament actually come from the book of Zechariah. There's the powerful image in chapter 3 of Joshua the high priest, and he's standing there in filthy garments, and Satan is accusing him. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord, commands that he be given clean garments. What a wonderful picture. You know the classic hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. We sing that once in a while. Well, the material for that hymn comes out of Zechariah chapter 13, when it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. I could go on. There's a lot of great stuff we're going to get to look at together in Zechariah. And Zechariah contains numerous prophecies about Jesus Christ, very explicitly messianic in nature. Uh, The Palm Sunday message, for example, uh, that passage we always read that talks about uh, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, it comes from Zechariah. In reference to Judas and the money that he received to betray Jesus, the 30 pieces of silver, there's an illusion, or that's an illusion, or it's a fulfillment to some extent of a passage from Zechariah chapter 11. When Jesus was pierced with the spear and blood and water come out, that was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They will look on me on whom they have pierced, on him whom they have pierced. And that very same verse is also the source of that familiar promise that God will pour out on his people the spirit of grace and supplication. And the passage of scripture that's quoted regarding the disciples' abandonment of Jesus when he was arrested is found in Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's in this book. So I hope you're getting excited about going through Zechariah with me because I'm very excited about it. The prophecy of Zechariah held many messages for the people of his day, but it also holds messages for us, too, because they are messages that ultimately speak of Christ the Savior. And these introductory verses that we've just read teach us very clearly that God is faithful to his word, both in his gospel invitations and in his solemn warnings. That's the message we're going to take from this text. God is faithful to his word, both in his gospel invitations and in his solemn warnings. The first thing we're going to see is 
God's gracious call to repentance. The message of this book begins with a somber statement about the anger of the Lord against his people. Look at it again. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's the entirety of verse 2 right there. God was angry with their fathers. He refers to the fathers because it was the wickedness of preceding generations that brought about the exile that the people had experienced. The very reason the nation of Judah had been invaded, the very reason all their cities were destroyed and Jerusalem itself fell and the temple had been destroyed is all because God's own people had turned away from him. They had sinned against him. And not only had they not walked in the ways of the Lord, and not only had they followed the abominable practices of the nations around them, they had done even more wickedly than the other nations. So yes, the Lord was very angry with them, and justifiably so. But then look at what follows in verse 3. Therefore say to them, And if we were to press pause right there, what would you expect to come? What would you expect the Lord's message from the prophet to be? Therefore say to them, I will visit their iniquity upon the children and the children's children. Therefore I will cast you out. But hear the grace of God. He once again extends his offer of mercy. He renews an offer of reconciliation. It's almost unbelievable. But he is still willing to be their God, and he's still willing to take them as his people. So he tells Zechariah, Say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. It's worth saying again and again, all of God's warnings are gracious warnings. They sound harsh to us sometimes, I know. But every time he extends a call of repentance, a call to repentance, it's a gracious call. Because every time, it's a call to people who have already rebelled against him. They've already transgressed his law. It's a call to people who have already broken covenant with him. And God reaches out to them over and over. Reaching out to people who have rightly earned a sentence of eternal punishment. And God issues to them a call to repentance. He urges, he even pleads with sinners to turn from their sins and to come back to him. And although people have refused to hear or pay attention in the past, God's gracious offer still stands. Now we should take note of who it is that's making this gracious offer. Is it some needy, dependent being who's desperately seeking worshipers? No. It's God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He's called here the Lord of hosts. 
And as we've said before, when God's called the Lord of hosts, what that means is he is the supreme commander of all the legions of angels in heaven. He's the sovereign ruler over all the nations of the earth. And in one single verse, the very one where we find the call to repentance, he's called the Lord of hosts three times. So he doesn't extend the offer of reconciliation because he has any need of any person, including you. He makes this offer because he's gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and his steadfast love endures forever. Maybe some of you have turned away from the Lord. Maybe you're turning away from him even now. But whether you've never before come to Christ for mercy or whether you have cast off your faith at some point, God's offer still stands. He still issues his gracious call to repentance. Turn to him while there's still time. Well, secondly, this passage shows us a generation that didn't listen. A generation that didn't listen. The text points to the example of a generation that did not listen to God's gracious call. And so God says, don't be like your fathers. God sent prophets to them too. Who urged them to repent and turn back to God. Look at verse 4. The prophets cried out to the fathers, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, all the rest, they were sent as ambassadors from God to people. And their words are preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. And there were many other prophets whose prophecies and oracles and words aren't recorded for us in the Bible. But all of the prophets implored the people to return and be reconciled to God. Did they listen? They did not. God's word says so. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And so God's word here in Zechariah follows up with questions in verse 5. And these questions are meant to instruct Zechariah's generation. First, God's spirit asks, Your fathers, you know, the ones who wouldn't pay attention, refused to hear, your fathers, where are they? And the tragic answer is, many of them died by the sword. Others died of pestilence during the Babylonian siege. It's difficult to argue which, uh, which one was worse. And then still others went into exile, and they perished in a foreign land. Everything God had told them would come upon them if they did not repent came upon them in full measure. They did not go down to the grave in peace. They did not, like Abraham, die at a good old age and full of years. Their lives were cut short by the fruit of their own disobedience. 
Well, there's a second question in verse 5. And the prophets, do they live forever? The force of that question becomes clearer when we get to the next verse. But in the first place, it's a rhetorical question, of course, intended to highlight the fact that just as God's messengers do not live forever, so also no one should expect God to keep offering salvation to a people who keep refusing it. These prophets proclaimed messages of salvation to God's rebellious people. They went to the people repeatedly, urging them to repent, calling them to faithfulness, but they died, the prophets. They died, and their voices were silenced. You know, as an aside, that second question might also be a subtle but convicting reminder to the people that the people themselves had put many of the prophets to death. Jesus himself lamented this when he wept over Jerusalem. You remember how he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The prophets don't live forever. And in many cases, their lives were brought to an end by the malice of those who would not hear or pay attention. Prophets die, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is really the most important point of Zechariah's question about the prophets. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? The prophets died, but the efficacy of their message never lost a bit of its potency. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever, stands forever. God's word and his statutes overtook the fathers. And there's a very solemn matter of application for us to make here at this point. God's word overtakes everyone. God's word overtakes everyone in every generation. People can, and they do, suppress the truth. They reject the gospel. They hear God's word, but they don't believe it. They say there's no hell. They say there won't be a final judgment. They think they're good people and that God loves them just as they are. They say the Bible isn't true. They say it's full of superstitions and fairy tales. But God's word will overtake them. In the end, everyone who rejects God's word will come to everlasting ruin. And the truth of God's word will be eternally vindicated in the sight of the righteous and the wicked. Everyone who rejects God's word will be overtaken by God's word. So this example of a generation that didn't listen was put forth not only for the people of Zechariah's day. The scriptures were written for our instruction, yours and mine. This example is held up for you too. It's impressed upon your heart as an example not to follow. What we find 
finally, in the end of this text, is we, well, we saw a generation that wouldn't listen, a generation that disobeyed, but there's also a generation that learned a lesson. Praise God. Zechariah's generation considered the ways of their fathers, and they learned the lesson. That's what comes out at the end of verse 6. So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. One thing we see over and over again, especially in the post-exilic scriptures, the prophets and then the books like Ezra and Nehemiah, is an acknowledgement by God's people that God was just in all of his dealings with his people. For example, Ezra 9, 13. Ezra 9, 13. Ezra the priest confesses to God in prayer, saying, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. God was just, is what he's saying. Or Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 33. Nehemiah prayed, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And it's in very similar fashion. That's, what, that's really what verse 6 of our text tonight is saying. The people acknowledged that God had simply done what he told their fathers that, they, that he would do if they wouldn't obey him. The people confessed that God had been faithful to his word. Their fathers disobeyed, and they received the due penalty for their error. But in his mercy, the Lord had also called to Zechariah's generation. He cried out to them, return to me. And he promised that if they would return to him, he would return to them. And they did return to him. And they did so in a state of humble submission to the will of the Lord, presuming nothing, casting themselves entirely upon his mercy. They had seen, they had seen that God is faithful to his word, and they perceived by faith that if God was faithful to his solemn warnings, he would be just as true to his gospel invitations. And seeing that the invitation had been extended to them and that God's offer stands, that he was willing to be reconciled to them, they returned to him. We already saw that in Haggai when we were looking at Haggai's oracles. The people returned to the Lord and they obeyed him in the command to rebuild the temple. And from the time that they set about the work, God told them, from this day on, I will bless you. And so, Zechariah's prophecy is going to be forward-looking. Haggai's oracles were focused mostly on the temple and the command to rebuild it and the fact that the people did take up that task. There was one writer who described the book of Haggai as kind of a prologue to the book of Zechariah. And so now that we're beginning to consider Zechariah, his prophecy is going to be focused on God's ongoing blessing upon his people and upon their blessed future. It 
if we were to speak of the golden age of the people of Israel, what period in their history comes to mind? I doubt that when we think of golden age of Israel, very many people immediately think of the post-exilic period. Didn't look very golden to the eyes of the flesh, did it? Israel had no king. They had no army. They had no wealth. Jerusalem was in ruins. The people were struggling to rebuild the temple of the Lord. They were a vassal state to the Persian Empire. Not very glorious. Not very golden, is it? To outward appearances, there just wasn't anything very impressive. But a little ragtag group of people struggling to get by. But God doesn't see as man sees. And there was something glorious going on in the midst of Israel under the ministry of Zechariah, something that sadly did not happen very frequently. The people heard the prophets, they paid attention, and they repented. That's glorious. When that first temple was dedicated, the temple that was built under the reign of Solomon, Scripture tells us that 22,000 oxen were offered in sacrifice and 120,000 sheep. But the word of the Lord asks through the prophet Samuel, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The answer is obvious. And so as we wrap up our consideration of this passage of God's word, allow me to close with a few points of application. Number one, it is infinitely gracious for God to offer the gospel to sinful people. The wages of sin is death, period. God doesn't owe anyone an opportunity to repent, let alone multiple opportunities. And yet he gives them. Praise be to God. It is infinitely gracious of God to offer the gospel to sinners. Number two, history shows that it is self-destructive folly to reject God's word. The flood teaches us this. We're told in the New Testament that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And although it doesn't come out clearly in the, in the Old Testament account, it would seem that while Noah and his sons were about that process of building the ark, he was also preaching to the people. And no one listened. And the flood came. And it illustrates that it is self-destructive folly to reject God's word. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah teaches us the same. Lot warned his sons-in-law, and they thought he was just kidding around, and they wouldn't come out of the city. They wouldn't listen, and they perished in the fire. The whole history of the people of Israel shows us this lesson. It's self-destructive folly to reject God's word. Are you still rejecting the gospel? 
Are you still putting God off? Testing his patience? Thinking, I'll get one more chance. Or I'll repent later. You don't know if there will be a later. God doesn't owe you another opportunity and you don't know when his patience will end. So the third point of application is simply this. Do not delay to heed the word of God. Don't wait. Judgment is coming. Your appointment to stand before the seat of judgment could come at any time. You don't know when it is. It's on God's calendar, but he won't allow you to put it on yours. Jesus Christ could return at any time, or your appointment to go to him could come at any time. Don't delay to heed the word of God. And then finally, just in case you need confirmation, just in case you're looking for proof that God will punish sins, all you have to do is look at the cross. Look at the cross and see that God hates sin so much that when the sins of his elect were heaped on his beloved son with whom he was well pleased, he put his son to a cursed death on the cross. That's how God feels about sin. So don't think he won't punish sin. Be sure that he will. God's solemn warning is that the soul who sins will die. But his gospel invitation is to return to him, to flee to him for refuge, to put your faith in the Lamb of God, wounded for sinners, offered up as a sacrifice to cancel guilt. And in the words of the closing hymn we're about to sing, brothers and sisters, hear this gospel message. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gracious message of the gospel. We thank you that your word is true and you are always faithful to your word. You're faithful to your solemn warnings, but you're also faithful to all of your gospel invitations. For that, we thank you. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to heed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.